Welcome to First Baptist Church in Belton. We are glad you found us. We seek to know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally together. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Thank you, Brother Gary, for leading us so beautifully this morning. Choir, orchestra, we are so thankful to God for you. I hope we never take you for granted because you are simply awesome, and we thank you for using your gifts and talents to lead us every Sunday morning. Before we begin the message today, we're going to pray, and just a reminder about our missions prayer opportunity We have one team out at the moment, and they are in Moldova finishing their work today. And they will fly home and be back in Belton tomorrow evening. So please pray for the Moldova team as they finish their very important work. This is the third team to go to Moldova this summer. And uh, they will all three be reporting, uh, I believe, next Sunday evening in our report time or or not next Sunday than the next as we have Sunday nights devoted to mission reports during the month of August. From Isaiah 64, since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. Let's bow together for prayer. And Father, as we are reminded by the prophet, you are a great and a mighty God, a good, a gracious, and a loving God. And we thank you for the ways in which you have blessed us. And we thank you most of all for the greatest blessing of all. And that is the gift of your one and only son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sin, arose from the grave in triumph over death, that we might have eternal life. And Father, we understand that that gift of eternal life begins at the moment of salvation. It is not simply something that is future. It is now. And we thank you for the blessings and the fellowship of eternal life, the blessings from you, the fellowship that we are allowed to have with you through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the fellowship then that you allow us to have with one another. And we ask that you continue to bless us this morning. I pray you've been pleased with the offering of worship that we have made to you and ask now that you speak to us very clearly this morning from your precious word. Thank you for all who are here. Bless each and every one. Draw someone to yourself today that he or she might come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. If you will, please open your Bibles to the 139th Psalm. I want you to have it there. We were led by Matt just a moment ago in responsive reading from that great text. And today we continue our series on what in the world 
is happening here. And the here is not in this building. The here is in our culture. What in the world is happening here? We opened the series last Sunday morning, and, and I know that if you've been here for a long time, you know it is unusual for me to bring a notebook to the pulpit. But I will be doing that in this series so that I stay on target and do not chase the proverbial rabbits that are running all over the room. What in the world is happening here? This series is not a harangue, an angry harangue, nor is it a woe is the church series. In fact, these are incredible days of opportunity. When have we ever seen a day in which there are more open doors to carry the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth and to the house next door? And so I'm excited about the future. But it is good for us to examine our culture and ask, where are we and where are we headed? Last week we talked about George Barna's survey of Americans, a survey entitled Post-Christian America. The very title itself will startle you because we think in terms of Europe being post-Christian, which she has been for decades, but we are yet not willing to look at our own nation and say that we have become a post-Christian nation. And yet if Barna is anywhere near accurate in his survey, indeed we have crossed over into being a post-Christian culture. And perhaps the most shocking thing for those of us who live in God's greatest place, Central Texas, we were startled to find the results of his survey as he listed the most post-Christian areas of the United States, metropolitan areas and, and the bunching together, the gathering together of cities geographically And we were very startled, at least I was very startled, to find that the belt from Waco to Temple to Belton to Killeen to Bryan College Station is the 51st most post-Christian area in these United States. The only more post-Christian area in Texas is Austin. We, according to Barna, are more post-Christian than Houston, Dallas-Fort Worth, San Antonio, or Gary, even Amarillo. Christ and the gospel are offensive. Jesus said that if he was despised, his followers would be despised. And we see that all over the world today. Christ and the gospel are offensive. And just as a reminder, last week we looked at three reasons for that and two consequences. So I'll list those to you for background and then we'll talk about today's message. Three reasons that Christ and the gospel are offensive. Number one, in the beginning, God. 
God created the heavens and the earth. God created mankind. In the beginning, God. Therefore, if that is true, and we believe that it is, he has the right to tell us what to do. He has the right to direct our lives. So for many in our culture, it is offensive that God exists, that God created, and that God has the right to direct my life. The second reason that Christ and the gospel are offensive is man is a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus died on the cross for our sin. He arose from the grave in triumph over death. I owe everything to him. He has the authority to forgive and the authority to judge. And the second reason that Christ and the gospel are so offensive is that the scripture says man is a sinner and sin is not a peccadillo. Sin is not a minor thing. Sin is not something to laugh at. Sin is serious. The third reason that Christ and the gospel are offensive is that there is only one way to God. Jesus said it himself in John's gospel, the 14th chapter, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is exclusive. He is the only way to eternal life. There are not many ways to God. There is one way to God, and it is by Jesus. So Jesus is either telling the truth or he isn't. We believe, we who are Christ followers, believe that he spoke the truth when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If he was not speaking the truth, then he is either a liar or a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis posited. And if he's a liar or a lunatic, then he is disqualified from being a savior. Then there are two consequences to Christ and the gospel being offensive. The first consequence is this, stand or crumble. Stand or crumble. It is easier to crumble and just not to take a stand or not to let anyone know what you believe. And we know that when we stand, we're not called to stand in anger or harshness or with a condemnatory spirit or shouting in angry tones to those who don't agree with us. We are to stand lovingly, graciously, kindly, yet clearly. The second consequence to the offense of Christ and the gospel is this. Is our culture falling apart or is everything falling into place? You make your choice. I choose to believe that everything is falling into place just as the scripture says it will and that 
the end of the age is approaching and that Jesus is coming again. So as you look about our culture, there are things that break our hearts. There are things that concern us. There may even be things that anger us. But don't despair. Our culture is not falling apart. Everything is falling into place. Jesus is coming again. The message this morning then is entitled The Disappearance of the Innocents. The Disappearance of the Innocents. Abortion. When Bill Clinton was President of the United States, numerous times in support of the pro-choice position, the President said, let's work together to make abortion safe, legal, and rare. As I listened to the words of our former president, I agreed with him that abortion should be safe. Now, I am totally opposed to abortion, but I certainly have no desire for a woman to suffer unduly because of an abortion. And so I agree that abortion should be safe. I also agree with the president that abortion should be rare, very rare, very, very, very rare. Do I need to add any more varies to that? However, I do not agree with the president when he said it should be legal. Today, many years after his presidency, voices have grown louder and louder and louder, falling into personal attacks and personal insults. I have noted a shift in many who are pro-choice. They have shifted to a position that says abortion is acceptable at any time for any reason even up to moments before a baby is born. We saw this lived out in the controversy that surrounded the governor of the state of Virginia a few months ago when he was asked in a radio interview about a baby that survives abortion, which occasionally happens. What do you do with the baby that survives abortion? And his chilling answer, and I don't know how you could have missed it. It was played on television many, many times. His chilling answer was simply that the baby would be placed on a bed and kept comfortable while the mother and the doctor made a decision about what to do. What do you mean what to do? This is a doctor. This is a medical facility. What question is there except to save the life of the baby? But that was not what he meant. Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York was interviewed on television this week, and the interviewer tried to press him into a corner about his belief in abortion. Is it okay even up to the moment of birth? And though he refused to answer the question, his refusal to answer the question was clearly the answer to the question of what he believes.
So allow me this morning to define abortion. I want to use non-medical terms uh, because I would look ridiculous giving medical terms. So I just want to give non-medical terms defining abortion. Abortion is simply the taking of the life of a baby while he or she is still in the mother's womb. Followed by extracting the deceased child out of the mother's body. That's as easy a way to present the definition as I know how. It is a gruesome procedure if you are pro-life. I'm not going to give any further description today. We have children in the room. I'm already a little nervous about that. So I hope simply the definition that I have given is sufficient for every believer in this room. So let's go to the second thing, which is what is the current status of abortion in the United States of America? I want you as best you can to try to get your arms around an enormous figure. And it will be hard to do because I've been dealing with it all week and my arms are not long enough to get around it. Over 60 million babies have been aborted in the United States since the Supreme Court of the United States made its ruling on Roe v. Wade in January of 1973. Over 60 million. Now there is some relative good news that perhaps you've noticed. The numbers of abortions are declining. And I'm so thankful for that. I believe the pro-life cause is finally paying fruit in many areas. The last year that we have total figures for as of this moment is 2017. And in 2017, there were 879,000 abortions in the United States. That is a staggering figure. However, it is considerably down from the average of one and a half million abortions that existed in the early 90s, 90s and on into the early 2000s. But there's still only one way to look at 879,000. And that's with a broken heart. 19% of all U.S. pregnancies two years ago ended in abortion. That's nearly one in five. In the District of Columbia, 38% of all pregnancies ended in abortion. Now, if, if, you, if you want to entertain today a discussion of racism, I would be delighted to engage you in that discussion. Because almost all of those babies in Washington, D.C. were African-American babies. So we have largely white-owned so-called pregnancy centers who are performing abortions in many parts of our country on primarily African-American mothers and their babies. So if you'd like to have a real discussion on racism, I'd be glad to engage you in that discussion. New York State's abortion rate, 33%. New Jersey's, 30%. Texas, 12%. 
in 44 facilities around our state. California has 512 abortion facilities. New York has 218. According to the United Nations, the only countries with higher rates of abortion than the United States are the following. See if you see a pattern among these nations. Bulgaria, Cuba, Estonia, Georgia, the country, not the state, Kazakhstan, Romania, Russia, Sweden, Ukraine. With the exception of Sweden, all are or were communist-ruled countries. Sweden, socialist country. China, each year, it is staggering to even keep up with numbers, and we can't. There's, they have no reporting mechanism that they share. But the estimation is that between 13 and 23 million babies are aborted in China every year. In our country, where are abortions taking place? 5% in hospitals, 2% in physicians' offices, 93% in freestanding clinics like Planned Parenthood, where there is no prior parent-patient, doctor-patient relationship. I find it disingenuous when politicians say that abortion ought to be between a mother and her doctor when 93% of abortions in our country are performed by doctors who probably have never laid eyes on the patient until she walks in the door for the abortion. 1% of abortions in America are performed on Mothers who are pregnant because of rape or incest. And I would engage in a discussion on that shortly. 3% are due to the health of the mother. 3% are due to the health of the baby. 93% are elective. Selective abortion is rapidly increasing in many countries around the world. For instance, in India... For every 100 male babies born, there are 86 female babies born. Why the gap? Abortion. Indian families are electing to abort baby girls and give birth to the baby boys. I want you to put your arms around the immensity of that in about 10 more years the population effect in the nation of India and other countries where this is happening. Some abortions are being performed because of the health of the baby. In the United States, where parents or mothers are informed that their child has Down syndrome, 92% are choosing abortion. There's a lot of emotion there, and I will just let you take the statistic and make of it what you will. I, I want you to know that we, as you know, have a, a number of Down syndrome children and young people in our church. Affectionate, loving, I look forward to my hugs every Sunday morning 
And I would hate to think what life would be like without those hugs. There is a political divide in our country that is absolutely enormous. It is the most significant political divide in our nation. I realize immigration is a big significant divide, but it is nothing compared to the divide that exists for abortion. So thirdly, this morning, I want to ask a question, and this is the question that determines how you view abortion. And I think you know what the question is. When does life begin? That's the question. Your answer to that question then, in my estimation, dictates your view of abortion. Does life begin at conception? Does life begin at birth? Does life begin at viability, which physicians say is the age at which a baby could most likely live outside the mother's womb? Or is it some other shifting, moving number? Most people who are pro-life believe that life begins at conception. And we take our stand on that because of our belief in the sanctity of life, God's treasuring the sanctity of life, and according to what the Scriptures tell us. Scripture does not use the word abortion. Do not, however, be misled by that. Obviously, there are hundreds of verses in Scripture where life is treasured. And among the Jews of ancient times and among first century Christians, abortion was not a controversial issue. Abortion existed, but abortion was not a controversial issue. Jews and first century Christians believed that abortion was wrong. The sanctity of life is upheld throughout Scripture. The passage that we read in the 139th Psalm, the prophet Isaiah in one of his most famous verses where the Lord spoke to him in chapter 1, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Then we remember in Luke chapter 1, the delightful story that we read most frequently at Christmas when Mary, the mother of Jesus, visits her cousin Elizabeth, who is pregnant and carrying John the Baptist, the one who was to be John the Baptist. And in Luke chapter 1, it says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. John, the one who was to become known as the baptizer, was excited because he, on inside of his mother's womb heard the voice of Mary the mother of Jesus later in that chapter as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears Elizabeth said the baby in my womb leaped for joy we believe that life begins at conception the New Testament makes no linguistic difference between personhood before or after birth God cares for and protects the innocent. And certainly a baby in the womb would be 
classified as an innocent. Exodus 23, Proverbs 6, 2 Kings 24, and more and more passages of Scripture. If life then begins at conception, what could be the moral justification for abortion? Some say, well, rape or incest. That's a hard one, isn't it? I would encourage a mother pregnant by rape or incest to understand the child. The child doesn't deserve to die. If you can't raise the child, and that would be understandable, then put the child up for adoption. But for the sake of argument for a moment, and I'm a purist, I'm a 100 percenter when it comes to abortion, believing against it, but I would be willing to engage in a discussion with the result being that those 1% of pregnancies in America that result from rape or incest could be legal if the other 99% would not be. Someone, some pro-choicers say every child should be a wanted child. They are. They are. They're wanted by someone. The line of young couples in our country who want to adopt makes every child a wanted child. Some talk about the rights of the mother and Maybe I don't have a right to talk about that as a man. And what would I have done if a doctor had come into the room and said, your wife's going to die if you carry this baby to term? Would have been a horrendous thing for us to have to wrestle with. I think I know the decision we would have made. But I love my wife more than life. So what would I have said if the doctor had said that to us? But I also think about the rights of the baby. Does he or she not have rights himself, herself? And then there are some who say that the government should not legislate morality. And I raise my eyebrows and I say, what? The government legislates morality every day. Every law that we have is a legislation of some form of morality. You can't steal your neighbor's stuff because it's immoral and it's against the law. But who would say, well, the government shouldn't legislate morality, let them take my stuff. Of course we don't say that. So I want us to think for a few moments about the marvel of the child. The marvel of the child. And I can't say it well enough, so I'm going to ask you to look at the screen and let's think about the marvel of the child for a moment. The marvel of a child. God is amazing. Think about God as judge. 
Job 1.21 and Deuteronomy 32.39 tell us that it is God's prerogative alone as creator to give and to take innocent life. Abortion then is an affront to God's sole and sovereign authority as giver and taker of life. It is an offense to his work of creation. Government is to promote the good of all people, according to Romans 13, 1 through 4. Government can take away the right to choose and would, and who would say that that would not be a good thing for the unborn? God is a judge over a nation that treasures the disappearance of the unborn, the innocents. I want us to think of God as a redeemer. For every person, every mother, every father in this room who has experienced abortion, I want you to know that God forgives entirely. That God heals deeply. And that God restores relationships According to Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Two more things, then we're done. The value of one. Sense the presence of the person in front of you, in back of you, or to your right or left. That person is valuable in God's eyes and valuable in our eyes. One mother, one father, one baby, one Christian who stands in the gap. And aren't you thankful that your mother chose life. Finally, what can and should we do? First of all, we should pray. There is incredible power in prayer, and so we pray about abortion in our country. Secondly, we stand on Scripture and engage others on that basis with kindness and graciousness, not in anger. We should vote pro-life. We are one of the countries in the world who get to choose our leaders. And we should exercise our right to vote pro-life. We should support places like the Hope Pregnancy Center. and And a slide is coming on the screen now for you to see. Hope Pregnancy Center does an incredible work in our community. They have saved the lives of hundreds and hundreds of babies and ministered to mothers and helped set in process 
adoption if that mother chooses not to keep her child. I encourage you to support them financially or by volunteering and with your prayers. And you can contact them on that website or at that phone number. And I would encourage you as followers of Christ at First Baptist Belton to do that. Next, I would encourage us to show compassion for the pregnant mother. We should exercise proactive mercy and justice. Don't shout about abortion unless you speak softly to the pregnant, desperate young woman. Encouraging her to have that baby and let us help you. And that is not just rhetoric. It is words of truth. Promote adoption. In speaking to the National Prayer Breakfast in the 19, I think it was 1994, uh, with the Clintons seated next to her, Mother Teresa said, do not abort the babies, give them all to me. And she meant it. That that woman meant it. She would have found a way somehow to take care of all those babies. And in a moment of incredible courage, I call it courage, when her speech was over and the audience was applauding, she walked up to the president and put her finger at him and said, stop killing the babies. I'm absolutely certain he has not forgotten it. We at our church must have a culture of life. The Bible is pro-birth and pro-life. And so we must value everyone, the healthy and the sick, the preborn and the newborn, the star athlete and the disabled, the genius and the mentally challenged, the young and the elderly, the white, the brown, the black, the red, the yellow, all people. We must treasure them. And so I close with these two passages of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 24. If you falter... In a time of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? And then the words of our Savior in Matthew chapter 19, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Would you bow with me please for prayer? In a moment we're going to stand and Brother Gary will lead us in the singing of our invitation hymn. To give your heart to Jesus, will you come? The Spirit of God is tugging at your heart. Perhaps he's done that many times and is doing it once again. When we stand and begin to sing, will you come and place your hand in mine and say very simply, Pastor, I need Jesus. One of our staff members will be here to pray with you. All around this room, among believers... Can we pray this morning about the disappearance of the innocents?
Can we pray about the issue of abortion in our land? And may God speak to our hearts about what he wants each of us to do. Father, this church is big. This church is significant in our community. This church makes a difference every day. And I pray that we will make a difference in our community in the way in which we treasure and value life. If there's one, two, three or more here who need Jesus, I pray that they'll come right now in Jesus' name. Amen. God speaks to your heart. You come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening. Please feel free to call the church at 254-939-0705 if you need prayer or need to talk with someone. We're here to listen, help, and encourage.